So we start this new series, Knowing Jesus, and I really just want us to think a little bit deeper over these next few weeks about who Jesus is, his character, his role, his mission, his deity, his promises, all uh, the wonderful things that we, we read in the, the Gospels and the New Testaments. And I, I thought tonight we'd start with, um, sort of start as the base really with this threefold office of Jesus, really because they serve I think as a background uh, or link between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how Christ fulfills uh, the Old Testament and how he fulfills these three anointed offices of the Old Testament and how Jesus still serves in, this, uh, in his role as prophet, priest and king today for the believer. It was actually uh, everyone's friendly theologian, John Calvin, who introduced the idea of the munus triplex, that was dreadfully pronounced, the threefold office of Jesus. And it's this threefold office uh, that presents Jesus as prophet, priest and king, who in his saving work fulfilled all the anointed offices of the Old Testament. And it was through this understanding that Calvin gained this better understanding of his Christology, of who Jesus really is, mainly focusing on Christ's work as uh, a mediator of a covenant of redemption and being the, chosen, uh, the one chosen by God to be the saviour of the elect. But it also helped him connect Jesus' person as the eternal Son of God, fully human and fully divine, to his work as redeemer, seen in his names or titles of Christ was that the Son of God is not properly called the Christ or Messiah apart from his office. But it is there in his official capacity as prophet, priest and king that he manifests as the true fulfilment of the offices of the Old Testament as prophet, priest and king. So uh, it was really important that, for Calvin that we understood Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Well, Francis Turretin, he built on this work, and he introduced the threefold office as Jesus as the divinely revealed solution to disease that plagues humanity, that separates us from God and gives light to our desperate need for a mediator. And this threefold disease refers to the ignorance of man, Romans 1.21, Genesis 6.5, Ephesians 4.17-18. The guilt of man, Romans 5.12, Psalm 51, Psalm 130. And the pollution of man, Psalm 51.14, Romans 3 and Ephesians 2. And so Turretin was able to make this link between the threefold office of Jesus to the threefold disease of man and how Jesus' office dealt with each of these areas, these diseases. It's very powerful stuff to read. It's really interesting and exciting how Jesus works through all that in his office. Well, let's jump in. We are going to be running around the Bible a little bit. There's some I'll just read out to you so you don't have to. There might be some that I'll ask you to turn to. But firstly, let's look at Jesus as our prophet. Jesus, our prophet. A prophet in the Old Testament, as we know, is someone who reveals God, someone who speaks for God, and communicates to people the truths that God wants them to know. 
In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now we know that after Moses said this, many prophets came. Many prophets came. But in Acts 3.22-23, Peter quotes directly in reference to Jesus as fulfilling Moses' word as the prophet of God, the one who will truly reveal God to sinful man, the one who will truly speak God's truth as the word of God, and who will enlighten sinners to that truth. And Jesus, uh, if we remember in the Gospels, he refers to himself as prophet. Luke 13 and Matthew 13, he refers to himself as a prophet. In fact, after many of the amazing works that, peop- uh, that Jesus did, people were in absolute awe of Jesus, of his miracles, of his teachings, and they said, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They knew there was going to be a prophet, one prophet that Moses was talking about. And because Jesus fulfills the role of the prophet, namely that Christ now represents man to God, God to man, there's no need for any more prophets. That was Moses' point. There will be one. And Hebrews chapter 1, as we know, we read it before, tells us that. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, the son who Peter applies Deuteronomy 15, 18, uh, and says it's, this is the prophet that Moses spoke about, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. So there's no need for any more prophets because God has spoken fully and finally and authoritatively through the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that was Jesus the fulfilment, he continues to be that prophet for us today. So if you think about the Mormons, who uh, James Smith, whatever it's called, I always forget his name, Joseph Smith, but they, they, they say, he's another prophet. Well, no, because Moses said there will be that one prophet, and Peter has applied it to Jesus in Acts after Pentecost, to say he is that prophet. And the writer of Hebrews knows that as well. He spoke through God, but he's spoken now through his eternal word, the word incarnate. There are no more prophets in that sense. Why is that? Because Jesus continues to fulfill his prophetic office. And he does so through the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? The Holy Spirit opens our hearts and minds to the words of Scripture as they are faithfully explained and taught. And Jesus encouraged us to think this way in in the Gospels, in John's Gospel specifically. The Holy Spirit, if you remember, will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus says that he is the Spirit of truth. He will always speak the truth of Christ to us. 1 Peter uh, 1.10-12 reminds us that the Holy Spirit is in fact the Spirit of Christ who has always been revealing Christ's truth in the Old Testament and who now speaks through the Gospel as it is preached. And we know from the seven letters 
to the churches in Revelations that what Christ, the incarnate word, speaks, the Spirit affirms. It starts with, hear what Jesus says, and ends with, hear what the Spirit's saying. So there's that connection so that Christ is still fulfilling that prophetic role as our prophet. He is still speaking to us through his word, and he's doing so, revealing scripture to us through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is our prophet. He is the one who brought God's word to us. He is the one who says, actually, everything you've heard points to me. God is revealing himself to you in me the prophets, and I'm the fulfillment of it because of what I'm going to do and what I will continue to do now for his people. So Jesus, our prophets. Secondly, I want us to see Jesus, our priest, because Christ's priestly office plays a big part in the New Testament, even though it's just Hebrews where uh, we, we gain that understanding, that title of Jesus as priest. And it's the key passage, really, is, is Hebrews Uh, really chapters 5 onwards, which lays out the characteristics of a true priest. So look at the start of uh, verse 1. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 5, page 1204. The first part of verse 1 says, Every high priest is selected from among the people. Every high priest is selected from among the people. The high priest, the second part of verse 1, is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. And not only that, he is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 4, no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. Further on in verse 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 25. It says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So what we see in Jesus is that he's not like the other priests. The other priests were selected from among the people. Jesus comes from God because he's the son of God. He is God's appointed redeemer and priest. He is the one who offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. Well, he does more than that. That's what the priest offers. Jesus does so much more than that. And he is the one who acts like the priest did on our behalf. Now, the Old Testament predicted a redeemer to come. Psalm 110 verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I remember we preached to Hebrews uh, when I was in Bispam in my curacy and I preached on this great chapter, chapter 7 about Melchizedek and I worked my socks off for that and I explained it and I did all the background. I I thought, I've nailed it. Then after the service, some person came up to me, so who were Melchizedek then again? I thought, well, what a waste of time. So that was there back in Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 6, verse 13 is another major reference to Christ's priestly work. So there was in the Old Testament priesthood a clear picture of a priestly Messiah to come. And Hebrews really helps us to understand and apply this work of Jesus, our great high priest, so much more. Because the writer of the Hebrews is aware fully of Jesus' role, his office as our priest. 
And he's the only one in the writer of the Hebrews who applies the term to Jesus. We're told to fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess, Hebrews 3.1. We're informed that we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Hebrews 4.14. Jesus has not taken upon himself the glory of becoming a priest, Hebrews 5.5. For the writer applies the words of Psalm 110 verse 4 to him. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus is the kind of high priest who meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. For this high priest, sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Chapter 7, verse 27. So Christians are able to take heart. For our high priest, when he'd completed his work, sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 8, verse 1. The writer of the Hebrews understands the priestly system in the Old Testament. He understands how important to God the sacrificial system was. But he can see clearly how Jesus fulfills that office in the wonderful work that he achieved at the cross. The work that he did, the way he offered himself. And that's what we need to remember, don't we, when we think of Jesus as the high priest. Not only does he offer an all-sufficient sacrifice for sin, but the wonderful, glorious truth for us as Christians is that he himself was that all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. He didn't offer something. He offered himself for our redemption. And we get a sense of that in uh, Psalm 40. Let me turn. I'll read Psalm 40 to you. 6 to 8. It's a, we call a Christological psalm. It's about Jesus, Psalm 40. Psalm 40, 6 to 8. It says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt sufferings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus knew exactly his role. He knew it before the heavens and the earth were formed. He knew it in eternity. That his role was to come, to be not just the high priest to offer sacrifice for his people, for God's people, but to be that sacrifice, to do the will of the Father. Hebrews 1.10 makes it clear that Jesus then has superseded the Mosaic sacrificial system. There's no need for sacrifices because Jesus is that wonderful sacrifice for us. And like Jesus has prophet, his priestly work, didn't stop at the cross. We know that Jesus' redemptive work was complete because we're told, if you remember, that he sat down at the right hand of God. But he continues to function as our high priest because he continues to intercede for us. He continues to be that mediator between us and God. 1 John 2, 1-2 tells us that and we saw it there in uh, chapter 5 as well. 
He intercedes for us as our high priest. So when God looks at us, Jesus says, I, I, oh, he doesn't say, oh, hang on a minute, God, when, when we sin and when we do things wrong. He doesn't say, hang on a minute, I just need to go make a sacrifice. He's there in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. When we sin and when we make a mess, when we do things wrong, Jesus says, no, I've acted for them. My sacrifice at the cross is sufficient. It has dealt with their sin. And God knows that and God sees that. And he looks at the righteousness of Christ and says, your work is done. I don't request or require anything else. Hebrews 2.18 tells us, that Jesus as priest is our help now when we are being tempted. Because of all that he's gone through. And you know, I don't think we, we turn to Jesus in that way enough, do we not, in our temptations? We probably don't cry out enough to Jesus. To, we know we're being tempted, don't we? We know when we do things wrong. And we don't stop ourselves, say, Jesus, of all that you went through, turn to... Uh, if, you, if you're still in Hebrews, stay in Hebrews now. Uh, Hebrews 2.18. Or verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered. When he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. How often, in the midst of our temptations, we know it. Do we stop and say, Jesus, help me? Because he will. Yet I don't think we believe it often. And I don't think we apply it to ourselves enough. I just wonder sometimes we quite like the temptation in our weaknesses as Christians. And sometimes we want to give in. I know people, Christians, who have spoken to me and said, you know, whatever certain sins we deal with in our lives... Sometimes that temptation's good for me. They know it's not, but at the time, they think it is. And it's reminding ourselves, no. When we're being tempted, in that hour of need, we need to stand firm and say, Jesus, help me. 1 Peter, doesn't, uh, 1 Peter reminds us, doesn't he, that because Jesus is the high priest, he's building us into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So Jesus continues in his priestly office to work in and for his people, preparing us, sanctifying us, helping us in our hours of need so that we can stand firm in our faith and that we can be sanctified, be made ready when he returns to take us home. So Jesus, our prophet, Jesus, our priest, and then thirdly, Jesus, our king. A king, we know, is someone who has authority to rule and reign over a group of people. If you remember when we did our series in 1 Samuel, the people wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations. They thought the king would protect them and look after them. And what did God say to them through Samuel? You don't need a king. You've got the king. You've got me. I'm your ruler. But they didn't listen to that. They persisted in their request for a king. So what did God do? He granted them a king. And really, if we're honest, what followed in the kingly sort of Old Testament line, it was pretty much a disaster, wasn't it? Yes, there were some good kings who followed God's ways, but they never seemed to last that long. You know, there was lousy kings who just rebelled against God, who didn't walk in the way of God and his word. 
And then the greatest king, the greatest hope in the Old Testament, King David, who, when you look at what he did in his tremendous fall from grace, you think, could there ever be a king who could fulfill that role fully and perfectly for his people? Well, isn't it wonderful that in his weakness, in his frailties, even David knew there was a future king to come, a future king who would be the one true king. And we know in the New Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of that king. Mark 1 introduces this theme to us by uh, reminding us Jesus' words to repent for the kingdom of God is coming. A new kingdom is coming. And a new kingdom has to have a king. And he has to rule and govern his people. And Jesus is called the king of the Jews by the Magi in Matthew 2.2. 2. In Matthew 27.11, Jesus accepts the title of king when he was questioned by the governor. Matthew 21 verse 5 tells that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was the fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah. Revelation 19 uh, reminds us that Jesus is the judge and ruler. Colossians speaks of Jesus being the head of the church, the one who's in control. But the Bible, and especially the New Testament, doesn't just want to see, portray Jesus as just the king of a people. The New Testament wants us to see that Jesus is the king of the universe too. The king of everything. His office as king far supersedes that of any earthly king gone before him. We turn to a passage like Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. We're going to look at that in a few weeks, but it shows us the supremacy of Christ, looking uh, not just at his kingly rule of a, of a people, but over the universe as well. That God has placed everything under the rule and authority of Christ. We sing, don't we? Jesus is Lord. We speak of his lordship. And this lordship, this kingship, applies to the church and to the world. Those famous words in Philippians 2, 11, 10 to 11, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and one day every knee will bow and confess Jesus as King. Everybody. Jesus is King of the universe. And when he returns, everybody will bow down to his kingship. And like the other two offices, Jesus is kingly office gives us a wealth of comfort and assurance think about what jesus said in matthew 24 while the nations rage against one another while the earth groans beneath our feet while there is sickness disease and economic hardship king jesus according to 1 corinthians 15 is ruling and reigning until he makes his enemies his footstool And while the world scoffs at Christianity and asks, where is this coming, he promised, that Peter refers to, we can take heart because the signs of the times are proof that he is coming, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Jesus is the King, the everlasting King, the King who has a kingdom. And if we're a Christian tonight, then we know that we are part of that kingdom. And we must live with Jesus as King of every aspect of our life. He is our Lord. 
Do you know, we say it, and we say it in such a positive light. But if we're honest at times, it's a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? You think about the old king, sort of kings of the past and the queens, you know, of, of yesteryear, where you did what they said. You bowed down and submitted to their rule and authority. And isn't it true that so often as Christians, we love to think of Jesus as Lord, but it's a bit uncomfortable and difficult at time making him Lord and King of our life, isn't it? Because there are always areas in our life that we want to be king of. There are always areas in our lives that we don't really want him to be Lord of all the time. But it is in those times like Jesus, our priest, we need to cry out to him and say, Jesus, help me. Be my king. Rule my life. Lead me in that way of righteousness. This then, these threefold office of the Lord Jesus should be our hope and our comforts. Jesus is the final prophet, the great high priest and the conquering king. And as I said that Turretin said that uh, the threefold office of Christ represents and serves to cure the threefold disease of man. The disease of ignorance. Jesus has fulfilled that as prophet, hasn't he? He's revealed the truth to us. He's come down to say and to reveal God and say, I am the truth, the way and the life. Think about the disease of guilt that the New Testament talks of. That Jesus in his priestly office has dealt with the guilt of our sins himself once for all upon the cross. Isn't that worth rejoicing in? And he talks about the disease of the pollution of mankind. And hasn't that been cured by King Jesus who has come and fought that great battle for us at the cross? Who is ridding us of all ungodliness. Who is sanctifying, changing us as Lord. Preparing us for that day when we'll meet him. Jesus is still at work in us. Isn't that good? So we should think more in terms of this threefold office, I think. He is our prophet. He is our great high priest. And he is our king. And not, not only that, when he came to minister on earth, he revealed these things so that we might have hope in him. He's far more than just a prophet, far more than just a priest, far more than just a king. In him we find glorious hope for the future. And why don't we just spend a few moments in silence, just reflecting on that. Thanking God for Jesus and thanking Jesus for the, being the curer of the diseases of our hearts, the disease of man.